over the last several decades, the average testosterone in men has dropped substantially. So whether that's, you know, cultural, whether that's environmental toxins, food, I don't know. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's all of it. But we know that just statistically, men's testosterone is getting lower and lower and lower. like our show and want to learn more, please visit our website at peakwellnesshealth.com, which is linked in the show notes below, where you can gain access to a very simple 10-day body reset program that teaches you about diet, sleep, meditation, exercise, and guides you on how to lower blood sugar, lower blood pressure, lower body fat, and improve your biomarkers all in just 10 days. Additionally, you can find a body optimization program, which teaches you how to lose fat and build muscle. You can also find a link to schedule a one-on-one consultation with me. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Peak Health with Dr. Gupta, where we work to optimize your health and maximize your genetic potential. Today, we're going to discuss Bone Health Part 2, the much-anticipated sequel to the first episode. I'm extremely excited about this episode because, number one, we have Dr. Doug Lucas joining us again, but number two, we're going to delve into topics like hormone optimization and peptides, which are very much in vogue with people like Mark Hyman and Tony Robbins discussing all the nuances in their podcasts and books. Dr. Lucas is an orthopedic surgeon and a precision health specialist focusing on human optimization and bone health. If you haven't listened to part one of the series, please do so because it's a great introduction to what bone health is and it relates to optimizing your bone health and preventing osteoporosis and osteopenia. Welcome back to the podcast, Doug. I am so happy to be here. Thanks. I love these topics. So let's get into it. Excellent. Excellent. We're happy to have you. Let's start with just a brief overview of bone health. Now, if you listen to part one, you know this, but those who haven't listened, we want to get you caught up. So just a brief overview of what bone health is, and and then we can jump into your five-step pyramid or treatment pyramid, and we'll go from there. Yeah, absolutely. So you know, I'll just do the short version for those that haven't listened to, to part one. And basically what we're talking about with bone health, we're talking about the diagnosis that people hear of osteoporosis and osteopenia, but really it's a much bigger picture than that because ultimately we're talking about dysfunction in bone metabolism and the diagnosis of osteoporosis and osteopenia is really just a, a, a radiographic or an imaging modality that tells you about your bone density, but really we're talking about dysfunctional bone metabolism and ultimately about fracture prevention. That's our whole goal is to prevent people from having a fracture. And those fractures, especially the fragility fractures that come with, with poor bone health, really have a significant impact on quality of life, being able to even maintain independence and even death. So it's a really big topic that people don't hear a lot about, people don't talk a lot about. And I think partly because the traditional medical model doesn't have a really good answer for, but we're going to talk about some things that are not recommended according to the FDA or by most doctors, but things that can certainly have an impact on the bigger picture of health. Excellent. All right. We're excited to talk about those topics, but before we do, let's talk about your five-step pyramid because you discussed this in the last podcast and I found it extremely helpful and it's a good way to think about all these various treatment modalities. So when we're talking about bone health, how do you like to tackle the problem? Yeah, so it's, it's, so it's funny. So the, the five-step the five step pyramid or the pyramid of health is, is something that we talk about, and it's relatively loosely defined. I'll, so I'll go through that, but I'll also go through our 4 R method of, of, of osteoporosis reversal. And so that's kind of like the five steps and the four steps. Let's get confused. But 
Uh, so the five-step pyramid really is just the idea that we need to start with the foundation. And I talk with patients about this because a lot of times people come to me and they say, well, I want the, you know, the peptide or the magic, you know, the magic potion that's going to do all the things. And the truth is there is not a supplement peptide or even drug that I can give you that's going to have a tremendous impact on your health without starting at the basics. So we talked about the pyramid being, you know, that foundational layer are going to be all of the lifestyle things. So your nutrition, your exercise, your sleep, your stress mitigation. So those are the things that make up that foundational layer. And then the layer above that are going to be what we call basically supplements. Those would include usually for the most part over the counter, often direct to consumer available things. But these are really just supplements that are filling in holes in your nutrition or things that just aren't available, bioavailable in our culture anymore. And then on top of that, the next layer would be hormone optimization. So for some people, this is actually replacement. And that's a, a, a discussion of risk benefit for each person individually. And then for other people, you know, we're using things like either potentially pharmaceuticals, peptides, or even supplements, which can have an impact on hormones. So it's not always replacement. Um, so then that's layer three. And then layer four would be peptides, which again, you know, peptides, like we talked about in the last episode, are these really cool, we'll just call them elements, we'll call them amino acid chain, short proteins that can have an impact on your health. And then that that fifth or very top part of the pyramid is really just talking about pharmaceuticals and how we use them. Not to say that they're not impactful, but generally we're trying to avoid pharmaceuticals and using them as a last resort, understanding that there is a role for pharmaceuticals, but that we should really achieve all of the other goals first before we get there. Right. And, and I love how you describe a pyramid structure because that really, you know, the fundamental foundation of this is lifestyle. And that's, you know, what we talk about in the majority of this podcast is lifestyle changes that you can make that will have a tremendous impact on your health. You know, the supplement part of it, I think is also important because many people just don't want to take supplements. They're like, oh, I don't need it. If I eat healthy, if I eat right. well, I have a nutritious diet full of vegetables and, and things of that sort, I don't need supplements. Well, you know, that in, in some ways it may be true. And many years ago was probably more true than it is now because the soil has been depleted markedly of a lot of these minerals and, and vitamins that we need. But the unfortunate truth is for most of us, you need supplements. If you, if you live in an area where you're looking at your, your folks in a regenerative agriculture, you are getting plenty of sleep, you're getting plenty of sunlight, you know, you're exercising frequently, maybe you don't need supplements. But you know, in, in, in the environment in which we live in, most of the time you're not getting those things and you do need some of those supplements. And we, we spoke about them in some detail in the last podcast. So lifestyle supplements, and then we move on. Hormone observation, peptides, nets. Anything to add to that? No, I think it's great. And, and you're absolutely right where it is really rare for people to be able to get everything they need through food, even with the best diet, unless, again, you're growing it yourself, you have great soil. It's just not in our food supply anymore. And so this is something that we all have to be aware of. And I recommend if you don't, if you don't, if you think that you are, then I would say test, you know, and let's, let's run a test. Let's run a, you know, functional testing, look at the biomarkers and see, because most of these things are testable. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Good point. Okay, great. And uh, you mentioned this RRR. Yeah. So we call it the four R method. And so we came up with this because we were struggling to explain our approach to bone health. And I think one of the biggest challenges, you know, when we talk about the pyramid that we were just discussing 
we say, well, the top of the pyramid is pharmaceuticals. But when you hear people talk about their experience in the traditional medical model with bone health, people will go to their doctor, they have a diagnosis of osteoporosis, hopefully from a, an imaging modality and not from a fracture. And the doctor will, you know, input some numbers into an equation and come out with a risk. And if that risk meets a certain threshold, then they're recommended a drug. But that skipped the entire pyramid, right? All the way up to the top. And let's just go pharmaceutical. And I understand why they do that, because they want to prevent fractures. And the drugs do, to some extent, prevent fractures. So I, I totally get that. But the drugs for osteoporosis are avoiding the underlying issue, which is why are you losing bone in the first place? They're not effective for a lot of people. There is a huge resistance to taking the drugs in the first place with about an 80% quote-unquote failure rate for non-adherence, meaning people just don't want to take them. And the side effects are not insignificant and the risks are not insignificant. So I, I get that too. So we came up with the 4R program because we said, well, we need to understand why are you losing bone? And so the, the first of the 4Rs is to recognize why you're losing bone. That comes with testing, potentially functional testing, coaching to understand lifestyle. Once we understand those causes of bone loss, then we work to the second R, reverse those causes of bone loss. And then the third R is retest to make sure we're headed in the right direction. And the fourth R is to revive your life and help you live without the fear of fracture. So love the 4R method because it helps us to, to put bone health into a box and say, okay, you have osteoporosis or osteopenia, let's fix it. If you need drugs, that's the the end of the conversation, not the beginning of the conversation. And it, you know, and people often feel that they don't have power to control their own health and well being, and they're reliant on the medical system. But what you just described gives people that power to control their own health. And there's so much you can do, as we've been discussing previously and and now. There's so much you can do to help in your own health and well being journey, so that you won't need those medications. So. Now let's focus on the things that we weren't able to discuss last time. The first is focusing on the bottom of the pyramid and the lifestyle section in muscle building, which is mm-hmm. so important because sarcopenia is a huge problem as we age. It, you know, it has an effect on your bone health, has an effect on your lifestyle and what you can accomplish in life. And, you know, there's a lot of studies out there showing that your, your grip strength relates to your your morbidity and mortality over time. So maybe you could focus on that for now. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, what you were just talking about, sarcopenia or loss of muscle mass, it is so closely associated with bone loss and osteoporosis that it's almost a question of chicken or the egg. You know, which one came first? It doesn't really matter because we need to fix it both. I think the conversation around grip strength is interesting, and we talk about it because that's what the literature shows, right? You know, grip strength has association with health and and outcomes and longevity. So I have patients, then they will ask me, well, how do I improve my grip strength? And if I, you know, use these grip strength things, you know, will that make me live longer and improve my bone health? And the answer is, well, no, it's a a surrogate marker, but it's a surrogate marker of your overall strength. So when we talk about, go back to the pyramid, you know, one of the primary things in that pyramid is exercise and the other one being nutrition. Now you really have to have them all in order to maintain and improve muscle mass, but those are going to be the two primary drivers. And, you know, of those two primary drivers, people tend to skip out on the exercise part the most. So I'll start there. As we age, we tend to stop doing resistance training. People tend to stop going to the gym, although I've seen a nice shift in that, that trend in the other direction, which is great. But people kind of start doing things that they're more comfortable with, that don't hurt as much, that don't hurt their joints. 
and we get away from resistance training. And the truth is, is that our muscles respond robustly to things that stress them out. And so we need to do resistance training. And whether that means a band or free weights or, you know, a class or body weights, I mean, it can mean so many things, but we tend to just avoid it because it hurts, <laughs> but it hurts in a good way, not a bad way, hopefully. Also, it's tough for somebody like myself who runs a telehealth practice to say, well, you need to do these things, but then I can't give them very clear guidance because I'm not there to put my hands on them. I'm not there to watch them do the exercises. And so we focus ten, uh, on the other things, or we tend to focus on the other things, which was an error, I think, early on in our practice. We now have some tools available to our patients, but we've always recommended people to pursue somebody locally to, to help them with that because it, I think it is dangerous to take somebody with pretty significant or severe osteoporosis and have them start doing exercises with you know resistance and talking about doing things like a deadlift when they don't have training they use the wrong you know the wrong technique and then end up with a fracture or an injury and that takes a long time to recover from so this has to be done carefully but it's really important that it's done and i do see a lot of people aren't doing it yes and and you mentioned you know nutrition is a foundation and that's extremely important too because if you if you want to start building muscle you have to start with nutrition first and that's you know 80% of of the process is nutrition yeah. and and if you don't eat, eat enough if if you don't take adequate protein that has the right amino acid profile <clears throat> you're not going to be able to gain muscle no matter no matter how hard you lift yeah. and exert yourself so maybe maybe Doug like you know I'm thinking about my my parents or you know their friends who are in their late 70s 80s they obviously are losing muscle mass developing osteoporosis or bone health how how do you help those people start on this process? Like, what are some practical tips? Yeah, I, th I think it's, in my opinion, you really need to figure out where you are. You know, so my parents, you know, similar age group, right? So my, my, in, my in-laws in particular, you know, they're, they're in their 80s and, and high 70s. And they just have recently gone through this health kick, which is, you know, funny because they lived around me for the last 20 years. So I don't know where they've been, but, uh, but here they are. So, you know, they're showing up, they say, well, how do I get started? And, and the first thing is, well, where are you? You know, what is, what is your muscle mass look like? What does your strength look like? You know, do you have any joint injuries that you need to avoid or work around? Because again, we don't want to get you injured because if we get you injured, you'll lose motivation and it'll take you a long time to recover. And so figuring out where you are. And so for my patients, that's blood testing, that's potentially functional testing. You know, there are some of these things you can do on your own. And we have a, we are, we have launched and are continuing to develop a do-it-yourself program to help people to kind of work through this at a different price point. So, so what, uh, there are you, more and more ways to do that. Elaborate on that a bit. What blood tests, what functional tests? Yeah. So from a blood test perspective, you know, we have a full panel that has, yeah, I guess I think it's over 500 biomarkers or something, right? So it's a, it's a big panel, but I think the big things in there are going to be hormone levels, which, you know, in, in men are not quite as predictable. Postmenopausal women, we know what those levels are going to be like if they're not on replacement. And if they are on replacement, making sure that they do have adequate levels. And then looking at micronutrients, so the things that you can look at in blood, like red blood cell magnesium, you know, serum, potassium, what are the micronutrients, homocysteine, B12, folate, like those are important markers of inflammation are important, omega-3 to 6 ratio, so all those things. And then some of your basic stuff too that you would get if you did go to your regular doctor that they would get too. Those are also relevant. Iron studies it can be in that group as well. Yeah, so then functional testing, it really depends on the scenario. I find a lot of people with bone health issues have gut dysfunction. So whether 
and they have a history of acid reflux, whether they have a history of just a discomfort with eating, particularly with eating protein. Um, you know, constipation is extremely common. So figuring out, okay, where, again, where are you starting? And then what potential functional testing do you need? Is this a stool test? Is this a food sensitivity test? Is this a SIBO test? Are we looking for the levels of stomach acid? You know, that kind of stuff that will really help you to improve your digestion so that you can then improve your muscle mass, improve your bone health, et cetera. Got it. Okay. Excellent. And uh, so if this particular, if this particular type of patient, you know, elderly patient or parents age who are looking to increase their muscle mass, if they're looking to start, they would start with these things, the blood tests, the functional testing, and making sure they are ready to take on the nutrition, the protein that they would need to gain muscle mass and make sure that they will not, you know, potentially harm themselves or fracture bone or something like that. No. Do you do you also recommend other types of testing, DEXA scans, and things like that before before? Yeah, I think you know it's important to understand what your DEXA score is. I, I talk a lot about DEXA because we I think we overutilize DEXA in the traditional medical model. You know, it is really the people the researchers are are really going down this pathway of saying we don't even need to measure fracture anymore. We just need to measure DEXA, which I think is a, a big error because DEXA is really just the density of your bones, and we know looking at particularly the bisphosphonate data that, you know, we can make bones denser, but eventually they become more brittle because it's not just about density. It's about strength, you know, which is a combination of uh, both quantity and quality. So we need, we need good quality in addition to the quantity index is only measuring quantity. So I think it's still relevant. It's still important, but it's not the only measure. The challenge is to measure quality really takes either a, a CT scan, which is not globally available with the technology that it takes and has a high radiation dose, or at least higher, or something like a REMS, which is a quantitative ultrasound device, which is awesome if you have access to one, but they're not very available. So I think DEX is important because most people can get one in their, their local area, but if you can get something that will show you quality as well as quantity, that's better. Okay, excellent. All right. And uh, so once someone finishes those tests, if, if they feel like they need to, to go to the next level and they, and everything checks out, then how do you recommend that they start down the path of gaining muscle? Yeah. So it's, you know, the combination of a protein forward diet, like you mentioned, and, and I tell my patients, we, we are generally aiming for around a gram per pound of desired body weight, which is way more than most people are consuming. And, you know, there are some things to consider in there, but that's why I say for my patients, not for everybody necessarily. And then adding resistance training, impact training if they're able, and then looking at the other activities that they're doing. You know, I just did a video on cycling, you know, as a tool for health. And while cycling does have some great cardiorespiratory benefits, it is negatively associated with bone health, meaning that it looks like the more you cycle, the worse your bones are going to be. Oh, interesting. Uh, not to say that you shouldn't cycle, but don't do it for your bones. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. So really, I mean, when you're, when you're talking about exercise and movement, it's, it's weight training, it's, it's lifting okay. heavier weights. That's, yeah. that's really helpful rather than some of the, you know, running or site. Well, I don't know about running, but you mentioned cycling. Yeah. Running's kind of in between. So running, there is some impact, but because it's so repetitive that your, your body adjusts to it really well. If you, if you compare running to cycling, running is better, but it's still not going to be as good as a resistance training. Great. And the patients that are more frail, they're elderly. How often are they able to tolerate this much protein? I mean, because it is a significant amount of protein. I, and I personally take, you know, one gram per pound and it's a lot. 
And I'm thinking about, you know, my parents or their friends taking that much and right. see gosh, that pushing back, you know, yeah. pushing back big time. So how often do they, mm-hmm. do they take that much? And, and Yeah, I mean, I, so I look at my patients that are in, we have some, we have some patients that are in their 80s and, you know, it, they can do it. You know, these are, they generally don't weigh as much, right? So they're, you know, 110 to 130 pounds. So they're, they're aiming for that like 100 to 110 grams of protein a day. And the truth is they have to make sure that they're getting three to potentially four meals a day in between 20 and 30 grams at each meal of protein and really shaping their meals around their protein. And then if they need to supplement with an additional protein shake, then they do that. I'll tell you that these patients, when they start doing that, they will generally start losing weight because they're they're cutting all the other stuff out, right? And, and we definitely see this in people that are overweight, but I'll see it in people that are underweight too. And then we just have to be conscious of, okay, are you getting enough calories in? And then, you know, is it just a body comp change versus are you actually losing weight in a bad way? So they're getting their six packs. They, at, at they, they, are, they are becoming much more ideal in a body composition perspective. I'll put it that way. Excellent. And give us a, a case study of someone you saw that was in poor health. You put them through this program and, and they made some improvements. Yeah. So gosh, would be the best example. I think probably I've, I've got a couple of good examples and I, I just think in general, I'm just thinking of somebody who, who we, who we caught the fall, you know, the rapid bone loss that occurs with, with menopause. This is a patient of mine. She's in her late fifties and she came to me just absolutely terrified of her DEXA scores. Now she'd never had a fracture, but she had had DEXA scans two years apart was going through menopause and had, I think it was like a 14% loss of density in her spine in like in two years. And so that's, that was extremely concerning for her. She was already osteopenic to begin with, and then she crossed that border to osteoporosis. And so we took a look at everything. We balanced her micronutrients. She was a candidate for hormone replacement. So we started her on estrogen, testosterone, and progesterone. She did have some symptoms of menopause as well, which those were all resolved. And then at her repeat DEXA, she showed a resolution of, of stopping bone loss. So we did not start to see improvement yet, but this was within a year. So you wouldn't see improvement any year anyway. Um, but her DEXA showed no bone loss at follow-up and then her bone turnover markers, which I think are better markers of progress than DEXA. Our bone turnover markers, which look at the actual cells that either make or break down bone, the breakdown bone markers slowed down by, I forget the actual number, but it was at least by like half. So if it was 800 before, it was 400 now, which is exactly what we want. And then the the marker of bone building, P1NP, you know, went up dramatically. And that's, a, that's a, a sign of the testosterone. I don't remember if she was on peptides, but testosterone and the changes that she had made in her exercise routine and eating a protein-forward diet. So just, I mean, we see it all the time. And that's just one example of somebody who was really like, we caught her, turned her around and pushed her in the right direction. And now she's just flying. That's awesome. What, now, what are those bone markers again that you've, you, you, yeah. So there's the two bone markers that we like the most that we follow patients with. The first one is CTX or C telopeptide and CTX is the marker for osteoclast function. So the cells that break down bone. So we want that to come down. And that's the marker that doctors will use if you're on a bisphosphonate or prolia, which is another anti-resorptive. They'll use that to, to measure success of the drug because they're they're basically poisoning the osteoclasts. And then the other one is P1NP. And I won't try to say what that stands for because it's a really long series of words. But basically P1NP is the osteoblast marker of function. And so we want those osteoblasts to be able to make bone. What's interesting when you look at patients that are on pharmaceuticals, 
even if they're anti-resorptives, what we see is complete suppression of both. So both osteoclasts and osteoblasts are not functioning. So basically you just have metabolically inactive bone, which will make your DEXA look better over time, but it will make you eventually have more fragile bone. And so that's why I, I really steer away from dysphosphonates unless somebody is in a, a very unique situation. Are you struggling with reaching your health goals? Do you feel like you need extra help to achieve your desired level of wellness? Well, we're here to tell you that you're not alone. Our website at peakwellnesshealth.com, which is linked in the show notes below, offers a variety of resources to help you on your journey towards optimal health. One of the most popular resources is the 10-Day Body Reset Course, which is designed to teach you about diet, sleep, meditation, exercise, and how to lower your blood sugar, blood pressure, body fat, and improve your biomarkers all in just 10 days. Our program is comprehensive yet easy to follow, and we've seen amazing results for those who have completed it. But that's not all. We offer a body optimization course, which teaches you how to lose fat and build muscle. Our program is tailored towards your individual needs and goals so that you can be sure that you're getting the most effective guidance. And if you need even more personalized support, we offer one-on-one -on -one consultations. During these sessions, we'll work with you to create a personalized plan that takes into account your unique circumstances, preferences, and goals. Visit peakwellnesshealth.com today and take the first step towards achieving your health goals. Okay, great. All right, and that's a great segue into our next topic, which is hormone optimization. You mentioned this particular patient, you started her on hormone replacement therapy. Maybe we can start with women and then we'll go to men. You know, what are your thoughts on hormone replacement therapy? And, you know, and if you could also incorporate that the Women's Health Initiative study, which, you know, many people yeah. hear about and are concerned about because it, it showed that, you know, potentially hormone replacement would cause adverse effects like cardiovascular uh, effects and, and yeah. breast cancer. Yeah. So I, I, I was just reading the original publication in, in 2002 from the Women's Health Initiative last week. And I'm, I was doing that not to torture myself, but to work on the, a chapter in a book I'm writing on bone health. And I just am, I'm so amazed by what that study did. And, you know, I would love to go back to 2002 and just be in the circles of doctors who are involved in this whole process, because it really, it's a, a really interesting example of how evidence-based medicine in a, in a arguably well-designed or not, but in a, a big, well-funded study generated data that were taken so out of context and had such an impact on millions of women and men eventually, but millions of women, not only in the US, but then worldwide. And then how multiple studies have come out that have really refuted all of it. And yet the damage that was done is still ongoing and it is really not changing course. I mean, it's just, it's, it's really remarkable. So yeah, to the, the first part, the first part of your question is, do I recommend hormone replacement? And the answer is absolutely understanding that, you know, if we're talking about the, you know, the FTC and the FDA, you know, hormone replacement is not FDA approved for osteoporosis. However, it is approved for symptoms of menopause. It is approved to help women get through the perimenopause period. And then from a longevity anti-aging perspective, we use it off label for anything where there might be potential benefit. Now there is risk with hormone replacement, just like there is risk with anything, but I think the risks have been taken way out of context. And I, again, I just, I have all this data at the, at the tip of my brain, so I could ramble on forever. But the two things I think that are really important to understand, I'll just limit it to two. 
about the Women's Health Initiative is that when you look at the intervention group, so by intervention group, I mean the group of women that were put on hormone replacement, there were actually two. And so one group was on an estrogen-only replacement, and I'll define that in a second. The other group was on estrogen and progestin. It's really important to understand here that the estrogen that they used was Premarin or conjugated equine estrogen, which is a it's a an estrogen product that is derived from horses' urine. And when you use something from another animal, you have to ask the question: Is it the same as what's in humans? And conjugated conjugated equine estrogen is not the same. It's not the same quantity of estrogens. It's not the same combination of estrogens. There are estrogens in horses that humans don't have. Uh, and so we're basically taking a synthetic, even though it came from a, a biologic animal, but it's synthetic and it's it's not what humans are used to. So you have this this product that you're then taking as a pill. So they took it orally, which has implications as well. And then the progesterone side is they were not using progesterone. And this is really confusing because in the, the media, in the headlines, they say hormone replacement. They say estrogen and progesterone cause these things. But the Women's Health Initiative did not use bioidentical estrogen replacement. And the progestins, which they used, medroxyprogesterone acetate or MPA, also known as Provera, that is not progesterone. It is a synthetic product that has different receptors. It responds differently in the body. And now we know from studies that have, have come out since the Women's Health Initiative that, that Provera by itself is thrombogenic, meaning that it causes blood clots. Provera by itself is associated with a higher risk of breast cancer. So when you go back and look at the Women's Health Initiative and you say, okay, in the estrogen and the progesterone group, they had, and I'm going to use quotes for those not watching this, but they had a higher incidence of invasive breast cancer. What's really interesting, if you look at the statistics, the hazard ratio included one, right? So it actually wasn't higher. Now they were able to say that because there was a subgroup that was higher, but the actual, the, the entire group in its, in its entirety of women that were on hormone replacement did not have a higher risk of, of invasive breast cancer. And yet that's what the headlines read. In understanding, again, that they were not on the same things that I recommend for my patients, and they just decimated the, the field. And if you look at the estrogen-only group in that study, they did not have a higher incidence of breast cancer. And so that, that arm of the, of the study was not stopped at five years like the, the combination side was. So it just, it just blows my mind that that study had such a tremendous impact, and, and people didn't really seem to question the fact that it was not, they were not natural hormones and that these hormones have a track record of the things that they were proving was true with hormone replacement, but we already knew that, right? We knew that progestins were dangerous and we continue to use them in lots of products in the medical community. And then we know that Premarin, when taken orally, will increase your risk of blood clot as well. And that's why I don't recommend it that way. Uh, but yet when patients come to me, they're very concerned about these potential risks. And so it's just, it's a very challenging conversation because yeah. of, of that study and then others. Right. Yeah. I, I, I clearly remember that when I was a medical resident back then, where the, when, the, when the data came out, you know, all of a sudden, all these patients completely stopped their hormone, hormone replacement therapy. And it costs, it caused such adverse consequences in so many women, especially the perimenopausal uh, group. And uh, they just weren't prescribe them. And, you know, it was like slow going until that, that recovered. 
So yeah, I really appreciate you going into depth and detail about that. Now, that being said, what, what do you recommend? When, you know, how, so if a woman comes to you in that perimenopausal, postmenopausal place, like how, how do you test them? What hormone, hormones do you recommend that they be replaced with? Yeah, we'll start with blood testing, you know, just to see what are your levels. And so, you know, we test, we test estradiol, we test testosterone, free testosterone, you know, SHPG, progesterone levels. Excuse me. And, you know, we do that because we want to understand, you know, where are you? For postmenopausal women, it's relatively obvious that those levels are essentially going to be zero or very close to zero. If they're on replacement, like I said earlier, we want to see, okay, where, where are your blood levels? Because there are, particularly in the OBGYN community, you know, the, the ACOG, which is the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, their recommendation to physicians is to use as little a hormone as possible for as short a time as possible. So really what they're aiming for are symptom relief, which is what they should be aiming for because they're following the FDA recommendations, right? So they're treating symptoms of menopause. But that level of estradiol in the blood is not what the literature would support is what you need to slow down or, or potentially reverse bone loss. So we're checking those levels to say, okay, where, where are you? And then what can we do about it? There are several different ways that people can use hormones. The way that I've been trained through A4M and through other, you know, kind of hormone specialty groups is to use topical creams for estrogen and testosterone. And the reason why we do that is because they're well absorbed. It's relatively consistent and it avoids, for the most part, that increased risk of blood clot that you see with oral estrogen. Um, not completely, but it's a much lower risk if, if it's even statistically significant at all. Testosterone is really the only way at that dose, unless you want to do injections, which I don't know why you'd want to do injections over a cream for testosterone. <clears throat> and then progesterone is an oral capsule, and we use micronized progesterone, which again avoids the risk of the progestin, which is increased risk of blood clot. And oral progesterone is very well tolerated and is also a really nice sleep aid for women, especially that are struggling with, with night sweats and other issues of sleep around menopause. Excellent. Okay. So blood tests, find out where they are depending on where they are, you put them on estrogen, progesterone, and potentially testosterone. And a lot of women may hear this and think, well, I don't want to be supplemented with testosterone. Right. So what would you tell? I don't, I don't want to bulk up. Yeah. Right. So I, and I, I love this question too about women. They'll say, well, I don't want to do resistance training because I don't want to get too big. <laughs> and that's that don't. Prove me wrong. <laughs> Prove me wrong that you're going to get too big by doing resistance training. Because I have, I have a lot of patients, you know, younger women, premenopausal women that I, I strongly encourage them to do resistance training. And I only have one patient that I would even remotely say, well, you're pretty muscular, you know, like, whoa, you got pretty muscular. But for the most part, I think it's, it's almost impossible. Testosterone, if dosed correctly, should not have that effect either. And we, we forget, or a lot of people don't know, maybe that women have testosterone just like men do, and men have estradiol and other estrogens just like women do, just at different ratios, right? So, you know, while a man's ideal testosterone is, you know, 800 to 1,000 or potentially more, depending on factors, for total testosterone, for women, it's under 100, right? It's probably closer to like 80, 60, or even 40. And those levels will help a woman to have more energy. It can help with brain fog. It can help with body composition, improving muscle mass. It can help with libido. And so it can really improve a lot of the other factors around, particularly perimenopause, postmenopause, and is a nice complement to the, the other sides of hormone replacement. Excellent. Okay. Let's go jump to men now. 
you know, how, when would you consider testosterone replacement and what are the adverse consequences of testosterone replacement? Because many men may think, well, this is going to suppress my natural testosterone. I'll have to take this, you know, for my life and it's going to shrink my gonads and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. So there are, there are risks and then there are side effects, right? And so let me just start with the indication. So, you know, we, we hear testosterone replacement and for whatever reason, it ha- it just has this negative connotation to it. You know, just our society looks down upon men that are replacing testosterone. And there are some great examples in the, the yeah, in social media recently about this. But what's interesting about our testosterone levels in general is that over the last several decades, the average testosterone in men has dropped substantially. So whether that's, you know, cultural, whether that's environmental toxins, food, I don't know. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's all of it. But we know that just statistically, men's testosterone is getting lower and lower and lower. I'm a part of this too. Um, over, so over, like you're saying over decades when we're measuring testosterone. Right. And, and not, not adjusted for age, I mean, or actually adjusted for age, meaning that if you look at the like 30 year olds 50 years ago versus 30 year olds now, the average oh. testosterone level is substantially lower. Like, I don't remember the exact numbers, but I, yeah. off the top of my head, it was like half. I mean, it's crazy low. Wow. And the problem with that is, is that if you have a lower starting point, just like women go through menopause, men go through andropause, which is a, a slower loss of sex hormones over time. But if your starting point is lower, as you start to lose your sex hormones over time, you're going to become symptomatic earlier and earlier. Where it used to be men in their 70s, 80s, and beyond, now it's men in their 50s, 40s, 30s. Because I see guys that come in in their 20s and 30s with testosterone in the 200s, which mm-hmm. is, for those that don't know the ranges, you know, that's extremely low. That's actually technically, you know, diagnosed as low T. Whereas, you know, optimal for a guy in his 20s is probably 1,000, 1,200, 1,400 total testosterone. So that guy starts to lose testosterone over time and he's going to be symptomatic out of the gate. Um, so I think, you know, when are the indications, you know, there are the FDA indications of under whatever the, the moving target is of 300 something or 298 or whatever it is. But I think that's way too low because we start to see men that are symptomatic at, in the 400s and 500s total. And part of this is the, the SHBG, which stands for sex hormone binding globulin, which we measure. And basically what that is, it's the carrier protein in your blood for testosterone. And if you have high levels of it, even if you have relatively high testosterone, the active or free testosterone is going to be low. And so you could have a total testosterone of 700, but if your SHBG is 100, then your free testosterone is going to be low. And so, you know, there are tools to kind of tweak all of these things. But when I look for indications, I'm looking for clinical signs of low T you know, so I'm looking for fatigue. I'm looking for potentially feelings of depression, low energy, brain fog, low libido, poor potentially sexual function, erectile function. You know, those are kind of the the big drivers for me, inability to maintain muscle mass despite, you know, the right exercise and diet. So I'm willing to give it a try off label for those indications in men, which again can happen, you know, early in life, 40s, 30s and below. So you, now what if the men's testosterone levels are adequate, but they still have those symptoms. Would you? Yeah. Then we need to, we need to look at other reasons, right? Cause those are kind of general broad symptoms. And sure. so, yes, they can be signs of low testosterone, but I just had a good example of this where a guy, you know, he came to me for a low T and his testosterone was a thousand, you know, and he's like, well, I have had these symptoms of this, this, and this, but the only thing he had had tested was testosterone. And he said, but I, so I want to go on testosterone. And I was like, well, let's, you know, 
let's look at the the foundation, right? Let's go back to the bottom of the pyramid and let's start there and let's see what's off because something else has got to be off. Yeah, I wouldn't generally just start there, but this is where the I think there is a there is a negative connotation around replacement because so many of the especially in nationwide telehealth you know dispensaries of testosterone all they test is testosterone and if you have the symptoms then they just replace it or they don't even test which i think is malpractice they just replace it which there are implications and we should talk about the risks and side effects yes and it's something also to keep in mind is that you know as we we've been mentioning over and over there's the the foundational base right diet exercise sleep if you are overweight if you aren't getting enough sleep if you're if you have a poor diet, these are all things that are going to decrease your overall free testosterone. And you know you can optimize your own inherent testosterone by by losing weight, by weightlifting, by getting adequate sleep, by decreasing your stress. And once you do those things, you you know you you may I mean you're going to feel better in general, and all the symptoms that you described earlier will improve. Let me ask you this, Doug: Have you seen? people with lower testosterone and then just go down that lifestyle approach and you see increases? Absolutely. So I'll just use myself as an example. So the first time I had my testosterone checked was, I don't know, like six or seven years ago. I'm 45 now. So I was in my my late 30s and I guess I was 40. I thought it was five years ago. <laughs> and my testosterone, I think my total was like 400 or maybe high 300 or something, right? Which is really low. And at the time, you know, I was an orthopedic surgeon and I was still taking call and my sleep was terrible and burning the candle at both ends. And yeah, so it was bad. I knew the lifestyle was bad and I corrected a lot of it and I was able to raise it up to over 900 naturally. No supplements, no replacement, nothing else. But then it dropped again, right? And so because I, the lifestyle sort of slacked off and then it went back down again. And so I ended up after kind of going back and forth for a couple of years, replacing it or getting it replaced and felt great on it. And, but for me, decided to try to come off of it, which then leads to the question of, you know, can you come off of it? Yeah. And so the answer to that is you can come off of it, but it will have an impact. It does cut the feedback loop of testosterone production. So if you come off of it, I wouldn't recommend going cold turkey. We have a whole strategy using peptides and medications like clomiphene off label for kind of restarting the system. So you, you certainly can do it. And I did it and I felt fine, you know, coming off of it. It was okay because we used the right process. But if you, if your thought is, will this short circuit my ability to produce my own testosterone? The answer is absolutely. It'll also have an impact on fertility. So the same hormones, well, there's two hormones. If you cut them both off from the brain to the testicles, then you'll also stop producing sperm. So that can have an impact on fertility. So those two things are absolutely real. Gonad shrinkage is real. The question is, is how much? And, you know, there's different numbers out there, but generally people will say, you know, 10% of your, of the size of the testicle will go down. For most men, though, I asked the question of, you know, you, does this bother you and does it bother your partner? And, and that's ultimately the most important thing. Um, cause most men I don't think are actually that worried about it and their partners probably aren't either. So those are kind of the the side effects, you know, other potential side effects like acne, that's a conversion issue, too much estrogen as a conversion issue as well. That's why you really should measure those things and make sure you don't have too much conversion of DHT or estradiol. Those can be managed. The risks, I think, are important to understand too. And I hear patients, you know, similar with women with hormone replacement, I hear the same thing with men with TRT. 
which is, well, I think it's going to cause me. I had, a, <laughs> I had a physician whose wife was a physician and, and she was adamant that he not go on testosterone because of the, the fear that it was going to cause him to have a heart attack. Um, so there's the heart attack fear, and then there is the, the prostate cancer fear. And so the thing about the heart attack is that there are studies that show an increased association of testosterone prescriptions with heart attack. But if you look at those studies, they're not very well designed and they're not designed to show an outcome like that. These are insurance database studies based on prescriptions written, has nothing to do with prescriptions taken, underlying disease, other risk factors, et cetera. So imagine who would be recommended to a, a prescription for testosterone or people, guys that have really low T. If you have metabolic disease, heart disease, you're going to have really low T. So I think there's too much bias there to read into that. Any intervention study that's ever been done has not shown an increased risk of heart attacks that I'm aware of. Prostate cancer, while if you give somebody who has prostate cancer, who has a hormone-sensitive prostate cancer, giving them testosterone will make that cancer grow faster. Same thing with women and breast cancer. If you have an estrogen-sensitive breast cancer and you give somebody estrogen or progesterone and they're progesterone-sensitive, it will make that cancer grow faster. So that's why it's, you can't say that there's no risk, but at the same time, if somebody is cancer-free for men, if they have, if they do not have prostate cancer, they're undergoing, you know, PSA testing and and they're having a, a digital exam, and we know what that prostate looks and feels like, then it's that shouldn't be a risk that you need to worry about. But we again still follow them with labs and make sure that their PSA doesn't pop up. What, so what about BPH? If somebody has BPH, should they or benign prostatic hypertrophy? Should they? Yeah, yeah. Thanks. Yeah. So, so for for men that have BPH, you know, we look at their PSA, and their PSA for men that have BPH is naturally going to be higher. So then you kind of have to go down this pathway of saying, okay, you know, do we get more information? Do we get free PSA? Do we use a four K score for for prostate cancer? Generally, we're going to get urology involved, and we're going to make a team decision around it. Most men with BPH don't have prostate cancer, right? So it, it shouldn't be an issue. And testosterone shouldn't cause BPH to get worse. It shouldn't take men that have issues with urination from BPH and make them worse, although it could. And so, again, that's just that that balance of what's right. Because you're going to be potentially very symptomatic from having a low testosterone. And there are things you can do about BPH. So it's always a balance. Okay, great. All right. And we're, we're getting close to time. But I, I do want to talk about peptides before we end. You mentioned peptides several times, and uh, you know, peptides have been around for ages. There are many naturally occurring peptides. One that people are very familiar with is insulin. <clears throat> and what peptides are, are chains of amino acids linked together by peptide bonds. And they're, they're generally smaller than proteins, which are larger chains of amino acids, but they are used as hormones uh, in the body. They're used as hormones, neurotransmitter, neurotransmitter sig signaling molecules, so how do you how do you use peptides? How do you administer them? Maybe just give us an overview there. Yeah. So again, you know, if we look at the pyramid of where they come in after we kind of have hormones dialed in, then we start talking about things like peptides. Um, so I'm going to use them on the on the bone health group. I'm going to use them really for muscle mass. You know, I, there is not a peptide. There are some fun hormone hacks, other hormone hacks, but there are not a peptides that I'm aware of that directly impact bone. But there are peptides that directly impact muscle, which we know is, is closely associated with bone health. So my goal is to basically put the body into more of an anabolic state using the IGF-1 pathway. It stands for insulin-like growth factor. And there's a couple of different ways to do that. The peptides that are directly related to IGF-1 would be things like sermorelin. You mentioned Tony Robbins earlier, you know, the, the company that he started around his book, ah, Life Force. <laughs> 
you know, one of the, the first things that they started with was Stromorlin because it, it helps people to feel better. It increases IGF-1. It has longevity hacks, energy, kind of has similar profile of testosterone without the improvements in sexual function and libido. So there's a whole group, though, in that in that pathway. So the, the growth hormones, secretagogues, they're what those called. So that's Sermorlin, that's Ipamorlin, CJC is in there. And then those are all injectables, which is a, a turnoff for a lot of people. So subcutaneous injectables. There is actually an oral one in that group as well, which I really like for my bone health patients, which is MK677 or Ibutamorin. And so that one can be taken as a capsule. It's stable in the gut and very well tolerated by my 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 bone health group, which tends to be you know postmenopausal. So they're not really interested in doing injections for the most part. So that's a really fun one there. And then there are other body comp ones like AOD9604, which is a fragment of growth hormone. Melanotan is an interesting one that has a quote unquote side effect of stimulating your melanocytes to make you look more tan. So some people really like that one. And then there are there's a whole field of the of the immune side, the immune function side, and mental function, cognitive side for people that have early cognitive decline or concerns about that. So I think I have a list of like, I don't know, 40 different peptides that I use for different reasons, but those are some of my favorites. Oh, that's that's really that's really interesting. So, you know, tell us, you know, because this this is so fascinating to me as this as the peptide knowledge base has been increasing, the scientific studies have been increasing, people have been using them more, we have more experience with them. It sounds in some ways like a miracle rock, you know, like and you're mentioning that the peptide that that stimulated IGF-1, had similar effects to testosterone replacement without the side effects of uh, testosterone. So how, how do you, uh, when would you, maybe we can focus on that one. When would you use this? Could you use it if you, you know, just wanted to gain more muscle, you're, you had normal T, you just like, look, I'm looking for a hack to build more muscle. Yeah. Is this, yeah. Is this- yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you can, I mean, these things, the people that are really into peptides, and I do this too, basically just rotate them, right? So I recommend that everybody from a longevity perspective, we should either be in like an anabolic window or a catabolic window. You should be trying to put on muscle mass and then trying to be cut, cut the fat that goes along with it. You should always be kind of seesawing back and forth. So then you can switch up your peptides to, to support that. So if you want to be anabolic, you know, things like AOD, Marlin, Ibutamorin, those things are going to help to drive you to build more muscle mass. And then when you get catabolic things like melanotan, you can even some of the the, the drugs like Ozempic, like on the name of what they do. Anyway, Ozempic, Munjaro, Thruzepatide. So all of those drugs are actually peptides. And so you can use those again on a catabolic side. That's a whole long conversation about those. But yeah. that's what I mean by kind of rotating them and going back and forth on them. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. So now a patient comes to you, let's just, let's use an example of middle-aged gentleman concerned about bone health, but really focused on human optimization, wants to, his testosterone's fine. You know, all of his other tests look good. He wants to work to build muscle and lose fat. Would you recommend him to rotate the peptides? I mean, would that, would that be something you? Yeah, I think, you know, once, once we've kind of nailed everything else and they have a clear nutrition plan, then absolutely. Yeah. I think that's a great spot to start with peptides. What, what are you? What are the what are the side effects and the contraindications? Yeah, you know it depends on the peptide. So you know before we had started recording, we were talking about cancer, and this is one of those areas where you know if you're talking about something that increases IGF one, if you have active cancer, that's something that would be you know a concern. Um, the nice thing about peptides, though, in general, is that because they're naturally occurring molecules and they're done, at least the ones I'm using have human 
research to support the fact that there are very broad dosing ranges. So, you know, we dose these things in a way that there really doesn't seem like there are any risks associated with them. Now, I can never say that confidently because, again, there's risks with everything. But the research that supports these things show that they're very well tolerated with a very low risk profile. If they're injectables, obviously you have the, you know, the risk of the injection and, you know, pain and potentially infection and that kind of stuff. But for the most part, they're very well tolerated and there are just some, some unique risks associated with each of the independent peptides. And that's why working with somebody who understands them is really important and not just trying to find them online because they, you can find them as a consumer but they're going to come from pharmacies that clearly state on their website that they're not for human consumption. But a lot of people do that anyway. So I would not recommend that because you probably don't know the contraindications. Yes, yes, that, that's a great point. And that's another question is, how do you know the purity of these things? And, and you mentioned, you know, you have to, obviously you have to work with someone that has knowledge in this space. But uh, is there are any other tips for folks to understand the purity of these compounds? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've reached out to the the direct to consumer <laughs> pharmacies, and you know, it's it's a tough one because if I look at the cost, you know, the cost of me in the the pharmacies that I use versus these direct to consumer pharmacies, it's like three times as much. But I know that the pharmacies that I'm using are under really tight scrutiny from the FDA and other pharmacy organizations, so I know that they're really really good about their their rules and regulations and what they're producing. The other pharmacies are not, right? So they can get away with seemingly anything. Now they say that they have really high purity, but nobody's testing it, right? Yeah. So, you know, how do you know? Yeah, yeah. So you, you really have to be cautious in this regard. And you don't know what they're mixing in, in that peptide. You don't know if it's actually that peptide that they're they're advertising right. to me. Right, yeah. Um, I, mean, I, I know people that use them. I know people that have made recommendations and have thousands of people following them that use them. So... My guess is that they're probably safe, but I can't, as a physician, feel comfortable recommending those to my patients. Okay. And then can you give us a, a case example of, you know, you recommending peptides and having a, a positive effect? Yeah. Again, I'll, I'll just use me as an example. So, yeah, that'd be perfect. Uh, yeah. So I mentioned that I was on testosterone until about a year ago and I, I pulled myself off and went in doing that, I used clomiphene off-label to help you can kind of reboot the system between the brain and the testicles. And then I used a peptide called gonadorelin, which also increases pressure on the brain to make FSH and LH, right? So then using a peptide to really help to push that. And then coming out of that, I was worried about losing the muscle mass that I had developed for that time that I was on testosterone. So I used, I used Tremorlin for a while and I rotated that with AOD. And then using those two together for a while, also used MOT-C, which we didn't talk about. It's a mitochondrial peptide because I have a history of uh, kind of crummy metabolic function for a lot of reasons, which is a topic for another day. But really using all three of those together, which is kind of a lot, but enjoyed using those, really helped to maintain muscle mass. And then most recently shifted more to using melanotan, which melanotan will um, block hunger signals, kind of like the, like I, I was talking earlier with Ozempic. It works a little bit through the same leptin, ghrelin, GLP-1. That's the word I was looking for, GLP-1 agonist. Works a little bit through that same pathway. Helps reduce hunger, increases satiety. So it kind of works from a, helps with a weight loss perspective. So I was kind of in more of a cutting mode. And then also I knew I was going to be, you know, around the, the Virgin Islands and I was, you know, traveling in the South and wanted to protect myself from the sun. So I developed a little bit of a tan and I was the most tan I've ever been in my life. 
So, you know, it's kind of these like cool side effects and felt really good. And I was very comfortable in my body as I was, you know, walking around the beach with my family. So, you know, it's just, I like these things because once you have the the basics nailed, they can really help you to achieve your goals. Oh, that's amazing. I, I appreciate your, your feedback and teaching here about these things because many people hear about them, but they don't know how to use them. They haven't spoken with anybody that's used them successfully. So this is, this is, this is great. Before using peptides, do you still recommend the basics? I mean, or, or do you say you can use them concomitantly? I mean, it's, a, it's a kind of the same challenge with hormone replacement. So when people come to me and they feel crummy and their hormones are, are terrible, you know, do we say, well, if you work on the basics and work on the lifestyle and get better sleep and eat better, you know, you're going to feel better. So I'm not going to give you anything. And that's a, that's a, that's a challenging back and forth. And, and I love my coaching team because they challenge me on this all the time. Cause it's easy for me as a physician. I like to, I like to give people tools, right? So I'm like, well, let's give you this. Let's put you on thyroid. Let's do this, all these things. And you got to remember too, that I'm an orthopedic surgeon by training, right? So, you know, in my training, if something didn't work, you just hit it with a bigger hammer and, and then hope for the best. I kind of use that same approach to some extent in this practice. And then my coaches will say, no, 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 no. Let's let's let the dietary changes do their thing. Let's retest in six months. Like they're just sort of like the yin to my yang. So sometimes we do, and sometimes we'll pull those triggers, and other times we'll we'll say, hey, all these things are available to you. Should you not be seeing the progress that you want to see? But let's try the foundational stuff first alone and see if we can get there. Excellent. Well, Doug, this was phenomenal. Thank you so much for your time. I'm sure the listeners got a ton out of this. If people want to contact you, learn more about you, how would they do that? Do so. Uh, yeah. So we have basically two websites to check out. So one would be optimalhumanhealth.com, and that's for more of the anti-aging longevity perspective. And the other one is optimalbonehealth.com, and that is very specific to osteoporosis. Most of our effort right now from a, a digital side is focused on YouTube. So just look up Dr. Doug Lucas on YouTube. And you'll find us there. Most of that content right now is aimed at bone health, but towards the second half of this year, we're going to start shifting that back towards the, the longevity anti-aging side. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Hopefully we'll yeah. have you again for a third time. All right. Looking forward to it. Thanks, man. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, please make sure to hit the subscribe and the like button and leave a comment about what you'd like to see on our future episodes. Just a reminder that this podcast is for educational purposes only, does not substitute for professional care, nor does it constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you're looking for medical care, please seek a qualified doctor or medical professional. For more information, or if you'd like to check out our programs, please visit our website, peakwellnesshealth.com. That's peakwellnesshealth.com.